Up until the middle of the 20th century, it could have been argued that the book of Hebrews was one of the most neglected aspects of New Testament studies. But today, that's not the case. Admittedly, Hebrews presents difficulties in interpretation as it contains some of the most challenging passages in the New Testament for interpretation. But having said that, a study of Hebrews is vital to the spiritual health of every believer. This is a book that will challenge us. And I don't mean just intellectually challenge us with these problem passages or so-called problem passages. I mean it's going to challenge us spiritually. If you've been saved for some time, but you feel like your spiritual life might be in a rut, this is a book that will encourage you. If you've been saved for some time and you perceive that you may be in some form of spiritual retrogression, this book might scare you straight. Philip Hughes, in his very fine commentary on the letter to the Hebrews, opens it this way. He said, if there is a widespread unfamiliarity with the epistle to the Hebrews and its teaching, it is because so many adherents of the church have settled for an undemanding and superficial association with the Christian faith. Yet it was to arouse such persons from their lethargic state of compromise and complacency into which they had sunk and to incite them to persevere wholeheartedly in the Christian conflict that this letter was originally written. It is a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. As to the introductory issues with respect to the book of Hebrews, the more informed you are, the less dogmatic you will be about some of the aspects of the introduction. Things like human authorship or original destination of the book. There are areas of the Bible where dogmatism is called for. The human author of Hebrews is probably not one of them. Nevertheless, I'm going to give you my opinion about it, but I want you to understand it's just my opinion as to who wrote this book. The book of Hebrews was written in the late 60s. That's really not under dispute. That's pretty well attested. Perhaps between 68 and 70 AD, although it could have been a few years before that, but certainly before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The title to the Hebrews was not originally part of the book, but apparently was added fairly early in the history of transmission. And while the term Hebrews was a national title, the book does appear to have been written to a specific community of Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus. That it is written to believers, I want to say it again, it is written to believers is no small point. It is clear from the internal evidence that this was the audience. Now, where the audience resided, that's not so clear. But the fact that it was written to people who were already saved, that'll help right there answer a lot of the difficulties of the book. More on that in just a moment. As to authorship, every book has a big A author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the author of the entirety of the Scripture. So when we say, who is the author of the book of Hebrews? You couldn't go wrong by saying God is the author of the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is the author of the book of Hebrews. But every book in the Bible also has a little a author. And by that I mean the human author. Who wrote it from the human perspective? And who might that have been? 
If one reads Hebrews in the Greek language and compares it to the writings of Paul in the Greek language, there's enough contrast in style and in verbiage that it's difficult to see the author of both those types of Greek being one person. So, Clement of Alexandria, who lived at the end of the second century, postulated that the letter was perhaps written originally in Hebrew and then translated by someone else into Greek. But that's unlikely for a couple of different reasons. First, the Greek of Hebrews is superb Greek. Probably the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. And a translation from Greek to Hebrew would not have given us this beauty. And second, while the Old Testament is quoted in Hebrews in many, time, many times, it's generally quoted from a Greek translation of the New Testament called the Septuagint. Something a person that was writing in Hebrew wouldn't have done. You see, they wouldn't write in Hebrew and then switch to Greek for the quotations. So it's unlikely that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and then switched to Greek. The early church, however, did accept Paul as its original author, and that was affirmed in 393 at the Synod of Hippo, and again four years, years later at the Synod of Carthage. However, it wasn't based upon any specific evidence. They just gave an opinion that Paul wrote this text. And in doing so, they ignored one piece of critical internal evidence. And that comes from chapter 2, verse 3, which suggests that the author, the human author of this book, was a second-generation Christian who had been evangelized by those who had heard Jesus. You see, Paul was a first-generation Christian evangelized by Jesus himself. So chapter 2, verse 3 does seem to remove Paul as the author of this book, the human author. Later reformers like Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon all rejected Paul as a human author, with Luther having doubts as to whether it even should be in the canon. Of course, if you remember our study of James, Luther had problems with James being in the canon too, so Luther was a feisty fellow. But if not Paul, who would it have been? Tertullian thought it was Barnabas. Origen thought it was Clement of Rome, perhaps even Luke. But the name that some modern scholars turn to is Apollos. And again, the more scholarly one is, the less dogmatic you are about this. And I almost hate to bring it up, but I want to because some people really are hard chargers that Paul had to, had to write this book. No, I, I don't think he did. And the more you know about it, the less likely you think Paul did it. It doesn't matter because the, the, human, author, uh, the human author is subordinate to the divine author anyway. But it helps to know what perspective they might have been writing from. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but Apollos does make some sense. I'll give you some of the reasons that New Testament scholars postulate Apollos in a moment. But my first personal inkling that Apollos might have been the human author was when I was doing classical studies at the University of Houston back in the late 80s. I'd finished the first three years of classical Greek. And as you know, the, the grammar really comes in the first two years. The third year is reading, you do various readings. In the fourth year of my group that I had up there, there we started with 30-something, we finished with seven, the group voted that they wanted to do Homer. Well, Homer wasn't going to help me because the Homeric Greek goes way, way too far back. It wasn't going to help me at all with New Testament Greek. So I spoke to Dora Pozzi, who's the chairman of that department in Oxford, trained, spoke many languages, taught both Greek and Latin. I spoke to her about perhaps doing a special study with me. I thought maybe we could do something that's a little closer to New Testament's time that I still get credit 
And she said, well, that'd be all right. And she said, well, you pick it. You pick it, just make sure it's hard. Hard enough to make it worth our while. And so I thought, well, this one I'm gonna do. Professor Pozzi, I think, I think she's still alive. By the way, an incredible woman. This, I mean, one of the smartest people I've ever met, one of the most educated people, spoke seven languages, taught both Latin and Greek. She was head of the Department of Classical Studies at University of Houston. It was great having a smaller department there because I actually had the head of the department as my teacher from the first all the, all the way through the, so that was a really wonderful thing for me. But she is a non-believer. She's an agnostic Jewish person. So I thought, this is what I'm gonna do. At least I had heard that the book of Hebrews was the hardest Greek in the New Testament, so I think I'll just pick that and we'll read through it. Because when you do an independent study with a Greek professor like that, you just sit down in their office, they assign a chapter or two for you to read, and then you read it to them, and you translate it as you're reading it and tell them what the, the main verb is and the subject and the participles and the, all those things. And so I sat down with her the first lesson, and I pulled out my Greek New Testament. I had made her a copy as well of what I was going to do. And she said, okay, let's read. And, and I read the first chapter. I, I sight-read it and then translated it for her. And it was, she was so funny. She knew exactly what I was doing, because I felt like if I walked a, a Jewish person through the book of Hebrews, maybe she'd get saved. And I wasn't the first person to try that. My good friend Roy Ledgerwood had tried it before. Roy was my first Greek professor, actually, at, at College of Biblical Studies. He taught me Greek. And uh, I never forget, she took the paper, put it on her desk, and said, this won't do. I said, I didn't think so. And she said, I said, why, why won't it do? And she said, this is not up to our standards. It's not, it's not nearly difficult enough. It, it's not, I can't give you credit for, for this, you know. And so I said, well, okay. What would you like me to do? She said, pick something else. You can pick something else, a similar time period. And she suggested Philo of Alexandria. And that, it turned out to be providential. Because Philo of Alexandria, when, when you were reading that in the original Greek text, it reads, not the concepts, but the grammar and the style reads exactly like Hebrews. So that's when I first got the idea, before I ever went to seminary and learned that there were a lot of issues with respect to this book, I got the idea that whoever wrote Hebrews might have been from Alexandria. Because you know how you can tell when you're in different parts of the country? I met a, there was a guy at church on Sunday. I said, are you from Chicago? And he said, yeah, I'm from Chicago. Well, it's because of his accent. You can tell by someone's accent where they are a lot of times. Well, you can also tell by their style where they might have been from in their writing. So that's when I started believing Apollos might have been the human author, but that's certainly not definitive at all. That's just anecdotal. But Apollos was Jewish, so was the author of Hebrews. Apollos was a native of Alexandria. And like I said a moment ago, the Greek in the book of Hebrews reads a lot like Alexandrian Greek. Apollos was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, so was the author of Hebrews. First Clement, which is addressed to the Corinthians, uses material from Hebrews in its argument. And Apollos was known to have spent a great deal of time in Corinth and was a respected figure there. If Clement wanted to validate his argument, he would make a lot of sense by doing it by using someone who wrote a book that had ministered in their congregation. So we might speculate, Apollos, but if you have a different view, feel free. The hardest view you're going to have to defend, I, I'm sorry, is, is Paul having written it. That'll be a difficult one based upon chapter 2, verse... It's, you can do it, but let's not fight about it. You're entitled to your opinion. That's what I'll tell you. Um, but it could have been written from either Corinth to a Roman audience or from an unknown location to a Corinthian audience. 
Although Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is one of the primary dissenters to this view, believes that the book was originally written to a body of local believers in Judea, outside the city of Jerusalem. It couldn't have been from Jerusalem. They couldn't have been in Jerusalem. I'll tell you why later. We can't be dogmatic about this, but most believe that it was written between 68 and the spring of AD 70 before the fall of the temple, and possibly by Apollos. But I wouldn't die for that, and I hope you don't uh, die for your view either on that, who wrote it. Now, about some things that we can be more dogmatic. Hebrews was written as a sermon that was apparently delivered in the form of a letter. It was written to a local congregation who had recently lost some of their leadership to persecution. This particular community of primarily Jewish believers is contemplating a compromise of disastrous consequences since it would mean an abandonment of the sufficiency and the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is going to warn us, seriously warn us, against spiritual compromise. Like Paul's letter to the Colossians that Will read a a moment ago, Hebrews presents some of the most well-developed Christology or study of Jesus in all of the Bible. And then interdispersed throughout the exhortations to follow through on what we know of the greatness of Jesus and mature in the faith, there are these warnings not to fall away once you become a believer. Suffering, it seems, and these people were under suffering, will cause us to do one thing or the other. We don't generally stay in neutral. We either move closer to God or we'll move further away from God. And this local group of believers was in danger of moving further away from the orthodox teachings about Jesus. Now, the reason that Philip Hughes believes that this is a book for our day, and I do too, is that in a large way, Christianity today is not taking their Christianity seriously. They're not taking the truth seriously. And compromises are made all across the board. And this book is going to warn us against such compromises. It is a serious book. That's why I said if you feel like you've kind of got off the path spiritually, this book is going to scare you straight. These warning passages are serious. One writer put it this way. This is Thomas Cospel. Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to persevere faithfully so we will receive all that God wants to give us and not suffer loss, but to enter into full inheritance, our full rest, our full salvation. So like most good sermons, there's theological truth presented and then an exhortation to live that truth faithfully. The primary theological theme that we'll see in this letter to the Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. The writer's going to make a case in the very beginning that Jesus is superior to angels. Then he picks a figure from Jewish history that everybody reveres. Probably the most revered person in Jewish history is Abraham. But right there next to Abraham is Moses. And so then the writer to the Hebrews will say he's not only superior to angels, but he's also superior to Moses. And then he's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the, his priesthood is superior to Aaron's priesthood. 
Matter of fact, he'll argue Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. So Jesus is superior in all these ways. And then he'll argue that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. You see, one of these things that these people might have been in danger of, it certainly looks like it, is going back to the old covenant. They were already believers in the Lord Jesus. And it looks very much like they were returning from, from some external pressure back to the tenets of Judaism. They might have been in Jerusalem and going to the temple and, and re-sacrificing. That's a possibility. They might have lived in another place and just being influenced by the Judaizers. But some people are going to say this Christianity thing is okay, but you know, it's just a sect of Judaism. We need to, go, we don't, we need to remember Moses. Don't forget Moses and all the laws of Moses and the, the, the former covenant. And the problem is, when you already have trusted Jesus, to go back to the Old Testament system of sacrifices, which just pointed us toward Jesus, is going to be a great error in judgment. And the writer to the Hebrews is going to let us know it's a great insult to Christ and his work if we know the truth and then we stray from the truth. There's a place in the scripture that says better that they didn't know it at all than they know it and stray from it. You see, if you've been given this information and then you willingly move the other direction, if you willingly take Christ lightly, then there are big problems to follow. I don't want to scare you off of the book of Hebrews. It's an incredible book. It's a serious book. The, the Greek is beautiful. But the theology is even more beautiful and more profound. Jesus is superior. In our study of Colossians a couple of years ago, we learned that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that he's firstborn over all. In fact, let's look at this passage now, an introduction to our study to the Hebrews. In Colossians chapter 1, perhaps your Bible's are still there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and he's the image of the invisible God. This is Paul speaking about Jesus, letting us know about his incomparability. He's the image, the icon of the invisible God. He's the exact image. If you see Jesus, you see God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And this term, firstborn, has caused a lot of people a lot of problems. The first person it really caused great problems to was a man back in the 300s by the name of Arius. And Arius was a smart guy, but he read this passage and a couple others, and he said, well, Jesus, he's the firstborn of all creation, so therefore he reasoned, Jesus must have been the first being created by the Father, and then the Father created everything else, which would make Jesus not only subordinate to the Father, but inferior to the Father. And then Jesus then created the Holy Spirit. That was something that wasn't widely recognized, but Arius believed that as well. So the Father created the Son, the Son created the Holy Spirit, and then there would be this hierarchy, the Holy Spirit being the less of those three, the Son, the second, and then the Father being supreme. That's not what this means at all. Prototokos was a title. He's the firstborn over all creation. And I'm not just saying that because that's what the Greek term typically meant, but we've seen that in verse 16. The very next phrase for... By him all things were created. It doesn't say everything but himself. All things were created by him. So he's, he's, it's natural that he would be over them because he created everything. All things were created by him, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. The book of Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus is greater than angels. He's superior to angels. 
And Paul is arguing the same thing here too. He created angels. So therefore he would have authority over them. He would be superior to them. It's not so much in today's culture, but in the 80s and in, in a little bit of the early 90s, angel worship really kind of got out of hand in the United States. I know we had that show, Touched by an Angel, which was a very wholesome show. Didn't watch it very much, but I understand it's wholesome. The theology was terrible, but the, the show was something families could watch. So a lot of people did, and people became enamored with angels. You know, you, you see... You saw bumper stickers, angels are watching over me. People thought when their loved one died, perhaps they became an angel and then watched over them. And it was just bad theology. I had a, this was back in my previous profession, I had a patient come in and she just had angel pins all, all over. And I looked at, she had so many angels, bumper stickers on her car all over her back window. It was just, it was just amazing. And so finally one day I said, what's up? I noticed that you're, you're really enthralled by angelic beings. I said, I, I love spiritual things too. What do you think of Jesus? And there was a silence. So, well, I, I don't really, I'm into angels. <laughs> okay, but yeah, but, but what about Jesus? And, and what about that? Well, not so much. You see, that, that's classic. And, and Paul's saying, no, you, you can't be into any kind of angelic Worship, if you will, because Jesus created angels. You need to go with the one that created, and that's Jesus. All things, whether it's in heaven or on earth. And he's before all things, meaning he's eternal, and in him all things hold together. He not only created the universe, he sustains the universe. You realize without God, without Jesus, everything falls apart. I know we have these natural laws, these laws of physics and gravity and all, the, all these uh, other things. Well, not without Jesus, you know. You know, you better be glad. Jesus doesn't sleep. God doesn't take a nap. He sustains everything all the time. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul concludes, so that he might have first place in everything. And that's one of the ways, when we study the book of Colossians, that's one of the ways we said we could gauge our own spiritual life. Where does Jesus rank in your spiritual life? Is he the most important thing or is he an important thing? If I was to say, is Jesus important to you? There's no problem. It'd be 100%. Everybody say Jesus is important. But when we switch it to, is Jesus the most important? Well, that's kind of moment by moment, isn't it? For all of us, it is. Because sometimes Jesus is the most important person in my life, and sometimes I slip it back to a little second place and something else slips in the beginning. You know how I can tell? Because I don't love him and obey him. See, every time I sin, I'm saying he's not the most important thing in my life. And since I'm not the only one in here that sinned today, I'm guessing somebody else has too. We, we all can say the same thing, can't we? There are times when Jesus is not the most important thing in our life. When he's not preeminent. He's prominent. He's important to us, but he's not preeminent. So Paul's going to say, Jesus is all these things, so therefore he should have first place. You remember that message? Most of you are here during the study classes. He should have first place in everything. Now the writer to the Hebrews is going to pick that up. And he's going to expand on that. But there's one serious place that he, he doesn't differ from Paul, but he takes it further. Jesus is superior. He deserves to be worshipped. 
But guess what, my friends? If you take him lightly, there are serious consequences. This, that's why a lot of people don't preach it. First of all, it's, it's a challenging book. I get that there are five warning passages. I'm going to mention them to you in just a moment that blow everybody away. So we, we wonder that we just stay away from the book. They are difficult, I'll tell you ahead of time, but if we have some theology down straight in the beginning, if we understand that the more difficult passages in the Scripture should be understood in, in view of the easier-to-understand passages, I think they'll become simpler. But Hebrews adds a warning that Paul doesn't necessarily add. And there's five of them. And they increase in intensity. And you'll see, once you know Jesus, what a travesty is for you to turn away from him. The writer to the Hebrews takes this a step further than Paul did. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Believe me, you'll have these highlighted in your Bible by the time we finish. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There's one in chapter 3, verse 7 through 4.13. One in chapter 5, verse 11 through 6.12. One in chapter 10, verse 19 through 39. And one in chapter 12. Verses 14 through 29. These are called the warning passages of the book of Hebrews. Now, while you're writing those down, let, let me just remind you of something. The book of Hebrews' primary, primary message is that Jesus is superior. He is preeminent. But then he goes on to give these warnings about what would happen if you don't recognize him as superior. And you don't live consistently with that. You know, sometimes people say that those who teach salvation is by grace through faith apart from works... And that you can confess your sins and be restored to fellowship. Sometimes we're accused of giving people a license to sin. So what you're saying, they'll tell me, in conferences worldwide, is that, okay, I can trust Christ, and then I can live any way I want to, and I'm still going to heaven. I'll say, well, yeah, that's true. But it's not a wise idea. Because there are some serious warnings against that type of behavior. You can't just mock God and get away with it. Now, one of the things is not, you're not going to lose your salvation. We're going we're gonna to have a whole study on that to make sure you understand before we get into them. But these passages are amongst the most difficult in the Bible for interpretation. But if we follow sound method when we get to each of these passages, these warning passages, we'll find them not only understandable, but actually very motivating. Now, in each of these passages, there are a couple of questions that we're going to ask ourselves. First, who is being spoken to here? Who's being warned? I've already given you a clue to what my view is on it, and that's that they're believers. I think the whole book is written to believers. Believers who are Jewish in their race, that had converted to Christianity, had been converted to Christianity, second generation, the author being a second generation Christian. So, so we're going to argue that they are believers. But the second thing, what are the consequences of falling away, taking Jesus lightly? Is it the consequence of losing one's salvation? You take him lightly, you lose your salvation. Or is it a loss of something else? And we're going to argue that it's a loss of something else. Not salvation, but a loss of something else. A loss of temporal prosperity and eternal reward. So yes, there are consequences to disobeying Jesus, both temporally and eternally. But the eternal consequence is not losing one's salvation. Just so I can show you, with the few minutes that we have left tonight, I want to just very briefly survey one of these passages, the one that comes up most of the time when I preach in a foreign context. In fact, I don't know that I've ever preached in a foreign context and mentioned the doctrine of eternal security where someone has not at the end 
raise their hand and ask about this passage. In fact, it, it happens so often that I've actually worked it into the sermon itself to try to cut off some things at the pass. In Hebrews chapter 6, let's break into verse 4 just for the, the time's sake. I just want to give you a little taste of what one of these passages looks like. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, which is in the middle of this middle warning passage. Let's look at this and, and just walk through it if we could ever so briefly, and then we'll cover it in great detail because this is one of the most difficult. This is the passage, by the way, that Jacob Arminius was speaking about. Many of you know that the name Arminius became associated with Arminianism, which is the theology that people can lose their salvation. Now, Jacob Arminius actually said, he said, I do affirm the security of the believer. However, there are some passages that I find difficult for the view. So Arminius himself believed in eternal security. He just was honest, and he said, I just, there's some problem passages. I remember listening to a debate on, on the television long before I went to seminary, and uh, some people that were very popular, you would know both sides of it. The person who started told the other person, said, well, let's, and it was on eternal security. He said, well, why don't we start with some of the problem passages? And the person who was on the side of eternal security answered back. He said, well, there are no problem passages. Start with whatever you want to. I thought, even at the time, I thought, that's, a, that's probably a mistake, because there are some passages that are hard. There are hard passages. Robert Leitner taught me that. Admit that there are problem passages. There are passages that are difficult, but once you study them thoroughly enough and compare them to other places in Scripture, then you'll come across with a good understanding. Well, this is one of those problem passages that Arminius had a, an issue with. Look at this. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, let's stop there. Is that a believer or an unbeliever? Well, at that point, you can't really tell. And by the way, we're breaking into the middle of the book. The writer to the Hebrews has already made the case that these people are believers. He's doing it again. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, we could stop there and say, well, is that a believer or an unbeliever? Probably a believer, but not necessarily. Sometimes people understand the gospel but reject it. I know there are people that teach as soon as you understand it, you're saved. I don't believe that. I think the Bible makes the case that you have to make a choice. Once you understand it, then you make a choice to accept it. And I've tasted of the heavenly gift, maybe yes, maybe no, probably more yes, that sounded like a believer. And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, now the column for believers is adding up at this point. And have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. It's really, really difficult to call that person not saved especially in light of what he's already said in the early. So, so we're, we're dealing with somebody that is saved, not somebody just pretending to be, but somebody that really is. And then the difficult passage. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Here you get just a little bit of a taste as to what the writer to the Hebrews is warning us against. Bad Christology. A bad application of what we know about Jesus. More on that in a minute. But this phrase is what gets people. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. On the surface, if this was the only verse we had, I would agree with Arminius. I'd say this it's, it sure sounds like someone could lose their salvation. It's talking about them falling away, isn't it? And then it being impossible to renew them to repentance. When somebody asks me that question in a foreign context in a pastor's conference, and they say, well, look here. Look here, what about that passage? Typically, I'll say, well, do you believe you can lose your salvation? And they, they will say, yes, absolutely I do, based upon this passage. And I will say, well, if you lose your salvation, can you ever get it back? 
And they would say, of course you can. Well, what do you have to do? Well, you have to get back on the right track. You have to repent. Depending on which denomination you're with, maybe you have to re-believe. You don't have to re-baptize typically. I said, well, that's not what this passage says, my friend. It says once you cross that line, you're not getting it back. So are you, are you sure you really want to make this part of your portfolio of losing your salvation? Because if you do, it's a one and done. You're out, and you never can get it back. The thing is, I don't know anybody, any respected theologian, that believes that if you were ever to lose your salvation, I'm talking about even people that hold that, that, that believes if you were to lose your salvation, you can never get it back. So that cannot be what this is talking about. Plus, we, all, we will show that we have plenty of passages in the Scripture that are clear, very clear. They're not problem passages that once you're saved, you're going to remain saved. So, see, this, I'm just giving you an idea of the difficulty of some of these passages. I want to be right up front with you. They are difficult. But we do recognize that this passage is warning somebody... And I think if we're fair, we have to say it's warning a believer, not just someone that's pretending to be. This is a believer that's being warned. They're being warned against falling away, and then th there is a line that they can cross that once they cross that line, they're not coming back. So what could this be warning them against? Well, this, as well as the other warning passages in Hebrews, in, in my view, and I hope to make a case so it's not just my view, that hopefully you'll understand it by the time we finish, there is a line that God draws in the sand. And we can say no to him, and no to him, and no to him. And we insult Christ, and we insult, I'm talking about as a believer, we insult him, and insult him, and insult him, and our sloppy thinking, and our sloppy actions with respect to him, because before we can act, we have to think, we have to know, that there's a line that I can cross, that once I do, there's no coming back. It's equivalent to what John calls the sin that leads to death. There's a line that one can cross where God says, that's it. No more discipline for you. No more warnings for you. You're going to die. The sin that leads to death, I'm bringing you home. The Old Testament, Saul was an example of that. So you see now some of the difficulties here. It's a strong, strong warning. But remember, we have this centrality, overall overriding message of the superiority of Christ. We should live accordingly. But if you choose to take this attitude that some people foist upon us, you mean I can do anything I want to and I'm still going to heaven? Well, yeah, okay, you, you will. If you truly trust in Christ, you will. But you cross that line and, and only God knows where it is. That's the scary part. You cross that line and he's done with you. You're still his child, you're still going to heaven, but he's probably going to take you on, he's probably going to take you on home. And you'll still be in a place of no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. You'll still be there. But you lose out on any temporal blessing, any joy you have in this life, and you'll lose out on rewards at the judgment seat of Christ in eternity. That gives you some of the idea of what we're going to be looking at in these five passages. I hope this will motivate you, excite you, toward a study of the book of Hebrews. What I'd like to do is encourage you to read through this book as many times as you can. If you're like me, sometimes you like to read, sometimes you like to listen. Buy it on Audible. Listen in your car. Maybe listen to six or seven chapters at a time. Get the flavor of what's going on here. Don't just listen to one chapter at a time. You won't get the overall balance of what's going on in this letter. Read it over and over again. I hope it encourages you. Don't be scared away by Hebrews. God's going to issue some warnings, but it's best that we listen to them, especially in today's culture where Christ is taken so lightly. We wonder why the culture itself takes Christ lightly. Man, be so bold. 
is to say the Christian church as a community is not proclaiming Christ in the way that we should. We're not living Christ in the way that we should. Why would the culture take Christ seriously if we're not taking him seriously? We must follow through on what we know of the greatness of Christ and mature in the faith, not falling away when times get tough. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging study that's in front of us. I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to not only study it, but to absorb the truth, to be warned when we should be warned, to rejoice when we should rejoice, but never, ever, ever to take Jesus lightly. And Lord, I'm going to ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.